Hello, and welcome to my podcast, Sex, Love, and Addiction. This show was created to provide accurate expert information and support for those seeking insight into the painful realities of cheating and infidelity, sex and porn addiction, as well as the relationship between chronic drug abuse and paired sexual behavior, commonly known as chemsex. I'm your host, Dr. Rob Weiss, a licensed therapist, addiction specialist, sexologist, clinical educator, and author of 10 books on intimacy, addiction, sexuality, and relationship health. This podcast is a forum for discussing sex, love, and addiction in frank, fact-based, informative ways. My primary goal is to bring you clear advice, opinions, and feedback from some of the world's most renowned experts in human sexuality, trauma, addiction, mental health, and relationship intimacy. This show is sponsored by Seeking Integrity Treatment Programs, which are also dedicated to providing expert-focused, highly specialized residential treatment for men struggling with sex, porn, and related addictions. You can learn more about Seeking Integrity and my work there at www.seekingintegrity.com. Now let's get started. Hey there, you sex and relationship healing people. I am so glad to be here with you today. You know, I have certain people that I just think are amazing in the field who are really kind of creating the kind of space and information that will make you feel safer and help you learn. And this is one of those people. I am sitting here with Kelly Gunter, who is a recovering woman who, let me just say this before I even sort of formally introduce her. I think what I love about Kelly is she is unafraid to tell her truth. And you know, when you're dealing with recovery, whether it's a partner who's hurt you or someone you've let down and you want to make it right, there's nothing more important than telling your truth. And I find for many women, of course, it's difficult to tell your truth because there's so many expectations on how women are supposed to act and look and be that men get a pass for. A couple of those issues, addiction issues, are are directly related to things like eating and spending and, and early trauma, the things that evolve that. Well, I am sitting with someone who understands all of that. Kelly Gunter is an internationally acclaimed speaker, life coach, and author of the brand new compelling memoir, You Have Such a Pretty Face. I love that title. Gunter, who describes herself as a survivor, emotional warrior, and connoisseur of comfort food, I love that, (laughs) says that her painful journey to find peace and self-worth began with a 243-pound weight loss. That is, yes, I did say 243-pound weight loss, including many moments of dark despair that eventually brought her to her knees. She's had a long history of working with and recovering from multiple addictions. Kelly's story of survival and writing have been featured internationally, really uh, Europe, England, all over the place. She's author of a popular blog, I love this, Ramblings from the Homecoming Queen of Crazy Town. And she is currently finishing her second memoir, which is called The Homecoming Queen of Crazy Town. Kelly also has a bachelor's degree in sociology and a master's in counseling. She was, like me, a licensed social worker for many, many years. I'm not going to say how many, Kelly, because we're not going to say how long we've been doing this. We're just going to say we know our stuff. So Kelly, I'm so glad you're here. And I'm just really wondering, like, what is motivating you at this point in life to want to write all this, say all this? I mean, you know, it's embarrassing. It's not comfortable. What is bringing you to want to share so much of your story now? The complete truth of it is I was in such a dark place at one point in my life, a place where literally I was just praying to God to let me die. And I couldn't find any 
truthful stories, any inspirational stories of people who had made mistakes, people who had suffered and came out on the other side of it. And finally, one day I just promised God, if you get me through this, I will speak. I will tell everybody so that other people who are in the same predicament or feel that hopeless know that they can make it. Just as a self-help author, you're not saying that there weren't books out there that inspired you or made a difference for you. It's just that the particular kinds of trauma and women's issues you're, you're dealing with, you didn't see that being talked about out there. Right. And I wasn't talking about books. Of course, I read all the books I could get my hands on. But when I would hear speakers speak, I thought, oh, you've gone through a lot, but you didn't make any of those mistakes. Like the unthinkable happened to you and you got through it. But what about people who had the unthinkable happen and then they made mistakes and they had poor decisions? Uh And so I wanted to be I'll tell all of it to give other people hope. So you don't just want to look at, this is how I finally got better. You want to talk about the, the, the hard parts, the struggle, the, the part that, the dirty part, the part that people would rather move on from so that you can give folks such a sense that they're not alone. Exactly. All those things that people don't talk about at cocktail parties, I tell it. <laughs> but they do them at cocktail parties. They're drinking, they're, right. you know, they're doing them at cocktail party. So, and you have a new book. And you've been writing a lot now about food. And we were talking a little bit before, before we started the podcast, that food is not the only issue you've struggled with. And yet food seems to be the sort of leading edge that will catch people's attention. You know, everyone wants to be thinner. Everyone struggles with weight. So they may not want to read about trauma. They may not want to read about sexual abuse. They may not want to read about other addictions, but it's kind of like the food thing that will draw folks in. But that's not just what you're talking about this book. I mean, yes, you lost a ton of weight, but that's not really what you have to say in this book. That's almost incidental, isn't it? Right. I chose the title, You Have Such a Pretty Face, because when I was- Because you do. (laughs) Well, thank you. But when I was 400 pounds, people would say to me all the time, oh, Kelly, it's such a shame. You have such a pretty face, you know? Mm. And it just absolutely penetrated my soul. It's not a compliment. For all the people out there who say that to people, oh, but she has a pretty face. It's such an insult and it's received that way. Can you say why? Because it's it's saying, well, you have a really pretty face. The unsaid part of that is too bad about your body. Right. Too bad about the rest of you. <laughs> right. Right. And so I always swore to myself, I said, one day I'm going to lose this weight. And when I do, I'm going to write a book. And the title is going to be, you have such a pretty face because I want to let the entire world know, stop saying that. It's not a compliment. You know, I think of Brene Brown and how, you know, she says like, you know, bless your soul, bless your heart, mm-hmm. you know, and that way of kind of saying, I'm so glad it's you and not me. <laughs> right, right. And, and I think that's kind of like wanting to say something nice to you, but not, but not really wanting to talk about the elephant in the room. Right. By the way, just on that little point, what would be appropriate for someone to say to you? Maybe just to not say anything and to not pay attention to, to the weight or what's being presented. I mean, how it's none of their business, right? Like if you had a big mole on their face, you wouldn't say, oh, you're so pretty, except for that mole on your face. <laughs> right. So should they just not say anything? Well, leave off the qualifier. Just say you're pretty. Uh, I, you know, I had strength. No one looks at the Hollywood actresses and say, oh, she has such a pretty face. They just say she's beautiful. Mm-hmm. So- I I say to people all the time, drop the qualifier. She's pretty. I love that. 
I love that. And I, I know we're going to talk about a lot of things, but one of the things that crossed my mind as you were saying that was that there's been a whole movement in America and hopefully in the Western in Western culture over the last, I think, 15 years to really de-emphasize skinny and to de-emphasize the perfect body. And, you know, this is important. I think how Victoria's Secret's going out of business. Yeah. You know, that whole idea that women have to be the sexy ideal, which we had kind of gotten away from in the 70s and moved back into with Sex in the City um, and all of that, that, you know, I wonder how you look at that movement in the modeling industry and the, you know, that whole world of let's not see women's bodies as having to be this. Do you, and I know that's not talking about your story and all that, but I'm just curious, do you see that as progress? Slightly. I, I just think that as a world, we are allowed to be whoever and whatever we want to be. As long as we're not hurting somebody else, we can embrace ourselves and be celebrated for exactly who we are. So Kelly, um, and thank you for that. Uh, I'm just thinking, I can't get past the, she was 400 pounds. And I, there's so much I want to ask you, like, what is it like to be... Uh, First of all, you never want to be that person, right? No one wants to be the person who has to be carried in and out or whose legs are so swollen that they're or is told they're going to die. You know, what is that like to that experience of being that that girl? I really want to know what goes on inside your head when you're in that place. You know, let me just try this. My addiction, people didn't know. You know, and most of the people I work with, they're pretty good at hiding what they do. You cannot hide 400 pounds. So what is it like to be that girl? It's horrifically painful. And I would sit and do my makeup and do my hair. And at the same time, I would say to myself, why are you even bothering? Makeup and, and hair being done isn't going to hide the fact the whole world can see your 400 pounds. And I just literally was dying inside because I, I had a little boy. He was six at the time when I finally had the surgery. But I couldn't even walk across the room without being short of breath, without sweat pouring down me, without my back hurting. And it, it was just difficult to survive. And people make the rudest comments. Complete strangers think they have the right to say anything they want to you. What do you, you mean? Just mean things like, hey, why don't you lose some weight or just like catcalling? Or what do you mean people are mean? I mean, I've never been in that situation. I can't imagine. You feel worse enough about yourself and then people say what to you? Like we were at lunch one day for work and some men said, what do you weigh, a ton? Oh. Just walking by a restaurant, just trying to have lunch at work. And people said those kind of things all the time. They called me tree trunk legs or Richter oh, because they said the ground had to shake when I walked. And so, you know, the world can be very, very cruel. And I think even more painful than the mean comments was more that I just was invisible. The world just sees past you like you don't even matter. Now, I've talked to a number of people who are obese, women in particular, and who have, who really believe that it is disordered eating related to early trauma or things that happened to them. And they talk about it as being a desire to escape, that when I'm really big, I don't have to worry about men hitting on me. I don't have to worry about being pressured by somebody who wants you know to flirt with me. I can make all of that go away and literally push them away with my weight and certainly push away their interest, which is in a way safe. And I'm wondering what your thoughts are about that. I know a lot of women feel that way. I didn't feel that way. For me, I ate for comfort mm. and food was the one thing I could go to that never let me down. And so I wasn't trying to push people away, but 
I, that was the only thing that I loved. I mean, or that loved me back kind of food, food satisfied me. I want to ask a question as a, a voyeuristic observer, because when, and this is just pure, not therapist, not support, none of it, but it's just a curiosity. When I look at someone who's sitting at a lunch table and they are particularly obese and they're having a salad with friends. And I think they're sitting there having a salad with friends. Nobody's eating more than they are. They're about eating. You know, how do they get this big if they seem to eat like everyone else? And most of the obese people that I've experienced when I'm with them in public settings, I never quite understand how they got so big because I don't see eating in any way that would seem to me to be problematic. And if they ate that way at home, it would seem to me they wouldn't be that large, now accounting for medical issues and all of that. So how does someone who sits at a lunch with friends and has a sandwich and a light salad, who looks like everyone else at lunch, where do they have find the time and the energy and the focus to gain 400 pounds? Like, how does that happen? Well, I can't speak for everyone because of course there are those rarities, the people, like you said, with medical conditions, but sure. I ate one way in front of everyone else because I didn't want to seem like, oh my God, look what she ordered. But at home, I ate in the car. I ate, if I was going somewhere to eat dinner with someone, I would eat food on the way so that I didn't eat so much when I was at dinner. And of course, I ate at home all the time. I just grazed all day long. So I think there's a lot of eating that goes on that people don't see. Which is shameful, right? Because like any hidden addiction, no one knows about it. You're doing it in the dark. It's like a double life. Outside, everyone looks at you like you're just like us, but then in your inner life, you know that you're not. Yeah. And I think a lot of times people don't even realize how much they do eat. I think that's those of us who gained some COVID weight. I can certainly understand that. Ice cream became absolutely <laughs> right. important in my house at a certain point, not just once a week. But um, so Kelly, uh, there is an embrace in our culture now of, and I really admire this of, look, if you're big, you're big. If you're, you know, let's not have every woman be the perfect size. And, you know, there are certainly women out there who would say, I get to be as big as I want. And nobody gets to say anything about it because it's my body. And I don't want people making decisions about what is the ideal woman. And so while I understand there are health issues and at a certain point, like how do you view that kind of almost feminist position of nobody gets to tell me how big I'm going to be and, and almost like taking on as a badge of courage rather than as something that is not healthy about me? How do you view that? Because I hear that in the culture. I'm like, well, yeah, I guess if someone's 300 pounds and they're comfortable with it and they love their body 300 pounds, who am I to say anything? So how do you view that? I think that pain speaks in a lot of different languages. And I said those same kinds of things, but I wanted more than anything just to be healthy and in shape. And so I think that we are allowed to be whatever size we are happy being, whatever size we're healthy being, ultimately it's our body, it's our choice. But I also know that for myself, a lot of what I said was just defense mechanisms and me trying to forecast out that I was okay when really I was just suffering so much and, and wanted so desperately to be something different. I think too that it depends how much overweight we're talking because I do know I have friends who are 40 or 50 pounds overweight and they are truly happy and confident. But when you're talking 240 pounds overweight, like I was, I don't believe anybody's happy there. 
So Kelly, how, of course, now that we've kind of covered some of the, how does the culture look at it and how did you feel when you were it, how did this happen? Not only how did it happen, I mean, I know how we gain weight, but how do you ignore what's happening right in front of you? How do you say, well, I didn't gain 50 pounds, I didn't gain 100 pounds, or it doesn't matter to me? I guess that's the secondary question. The primary question is, how did this happen? I think it's like with anything that we use to escape our pain, one day we wake up and we're like, how did we get here? And even though there were signs all along and people wanted to say something, people are afraid to say something. And even people who would say something, then you're so hurt by it, you just eat more. Oh, so it's almost a trap. Like people can't really help you because saying, hey, I love you and I'm worried about how big you've gotten is is immediately going to produce painful feelings and the desire to defend yourself. Whew, that would never be a, <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm concerned for how big you've gotten. That that would be like. I, you know, but as a loving friend, I would think, you know, I care about you. You've gained a lot of weight. I can really see you've gotten kind of big and I'm worried about you. And I want to, that, that isn't a nice thing to say. It sounds nice to me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just saying to a person who's been 400 pounds, those words hurt. And we know there's not a person out there that if you said, I'm worried about your weight, that they'd be like, have I gained some? <laughs> We're aware of what's going on with our body. So Kelly, I want to add to that. If you say you're, we're aware of what's going on with our bodies, I want to go back to that question. How do you, how does this happen? You just ignore, ignore, ignore. And as things go on, you get hopeless or you, you know, sometimes you don't see what's right in front of you, like denial. Um, how do you get from a, a healthy weight to being very, very, to have gained a whole bunch of weight? Now I'm going to avoid words like large. Okay. Being <laughs> large, that's out of my, I, I get it. I'm being politically correct here. So how do you, how does this happen to an aware person who looking in the mirror every day? Well, I can speak for myself and say that unhealed trauma will sit quietly in the control room of your soul, dictating every calamity of your life. And so as much as I could see myself getting bigger and bigger, I would try a million different diets. But until I dealt with what I was trying desperately to run from, it was never going to happen. Hey there. I sure hope you're enjoying this sex, love and addiction podcast. Before we continue, I'd like to remind you that if you or someone you know or love needs treatment for sex addiction, porn addiction, or co-occurring drug problems, Seeking Integrity can help. For more information, please visit our website at www.seekingintegrity.com, that's seekingintegrity.com, or call us at 747-234-4325. So in much of my work, and this is really interesting that you use that metaphor, I often say, especially to many of the men I work with, you know, you thought you were running toward something. You're running toward this exciting thing or that exciting thing. Or, but I think you've been all the time kind of running away. Yes. And it sounds like that you also kind of agree with that. A hundred percent. And so I wonder if you could talk more about that. The things throughout my life, I mean, I, I got up to 400 pounds and mm -hmm. then had surgery and lost 243 pounds in 14 months. And I was determined, kept that off for 18 years now, but I didn't heal what I was running from. So that's how I just went from addiction to addiction to addiction. 
How did, wait, wait, let's back up. I mean, I assume that when you've had that surgery from what you're saying, you didn't understand that. It, how did you view it then? Like this happened to me. I let this happen because because it sounds like you've had some awareness since then. And there've been struggles since you lost the weight that have driven you to look at yourself in different ways. But I assume, did you just go into the surgery thinking, I want to get healthy and this is the right thing to do for my body? Like, is that what you were, the level at which you were thinking then? Right. I just thought I want to lose the weight. I want to be in better shape. I want to be able to play with my son. I want to be able to have a normal life. So I wasn't putting any thought into why. I didn't think here are the words romance or sex in there, by the way, um, just to say it. Was there a desire at that time to to be slim so that you could have partners and be more romantic and sexual? Or was that not even in your head? Oh, of course. I had a whole list of people that I was just couldn't wait to look better so I could parade around in front of them and be like, you should have not counted me out. (laughs) Of course I did. Of course I did. I want to say I I have non-politically correct words for that, like fat girl's revenge, you know, like, (laughs) hey, girl, look at me now. And now you don't get to have any and you could have had it before. So um, please, nobody don't write me mean letters about that. I'm really just trying to be playful here with Kelly. So we're getting toward the sort of underlying the in this conversation, we're getting closer and closer to what is the underneath part, what really drove all of this. But I think I want to ask first, do you think that there were other signs that there were emotional problems you were having? Was it just the food or could you now say it was coming up in other areas? Oh, I think there were always signs. I was terribly insecure. I was a people pleaser. If dating the wrong men were an Olympic event, I'd have been a gold medalist. You know, I (laughs) tried to buy everybody's love. I, you know, everything I was trying to buy worth. But Kelly, what I'm thinking about in terms of like behaviors, you know, was spending a problem was, I mean, were there other issues that you could tie now, you may not have understood it then, to the underlying emotional sort of lava that was bubbling up inside of you, food was one way that it expressed itself. Were there other ways that you think it, it, you were sort of acting out? You know, I was so blinded and so unaware and so running, just running as fast as I could trying to get away from the one thing I could never run away from, which was myself, that I didn't, I mean, like I said, I dated all the wrong people. I had a true shopping addiction. Wow. I have pictures of Christmas that I always show when I speak somewhere. And it was just me and my son. I was a single mom, six-year-old little boy. And when I put those pictures up, when I speak places, you just hear gasps in the audience from people seeing all of the presents. My son would be so bored he would be like, can I quit opening? And Uh it just ridiculous. I would charge my cards all the way up and then take all year long paying them off to do the same thing the next year. You know, I have to say that that sounds a lot like food, right? (laughs) like gathering and gathering and nesting and growing, you know, filling your larder over and over again, except it's not food, it's stuff, but it's still kind of about filling yourself with something. It seems to me, is that feel right to you? Right. It made me feel worthy. Oh, I can buy these things. I can Mm. get for those few moments. I felt like I had worth. Did you buy things you didn't need? Of course. I I bought (laughs) purses and shoes and clothes and things for my son. And I, I got that under control after a while because I thought I need to really save money and stop spending all of this. And then I had a stint with pain meds. 
So we're really talking about whack-a-mole, which I think is a great way to think about addiction. Some people think, well, when the drugs are gone and I've worked on that, you know, I'll be fine. Or when I stop the eating and I work on that. But really for a lot of us, when you kind of knock down one issue, the other one pops up. And I think this is really, by the way, for all of you folks, what Kelly's talking about, which is there are, for those of us who have addictions and disordered eating, disordered sexual problems, disordered spending, whether you want to call it an addiction or whatever you want to call it, it isn't just one issue. And that is the gift of Kelly coming to us today. It isn't, I have a food problem. It isn't, I have a gambling or a spending problem or a sex problem is that I have issues. I am broken and it's going to express itself in a variety of ways, but that's really the symptom. That's not the problem. And I'll say to most of you folks, you know, what brings you into treatment, at least when I see you at Seeking Integrity or wherever that is, is it's the problem. You want to stop the sex, you want to stop the cheating, you want to stop, and in this case, the eating, the spending. But that's what brings people to seek help. That's not really why they struggle with these things. And that's what I wanted to bring you to now is, Kelly, you struggled with food, you've struggled with drugs, you've struggled with spending, and I think you talked a little bit about gambling as well. When did you begin to see this as not just that issue, but something bigger inside of you? The gambling addiction is what brought me to my knees. I lost everything. I had founded and ran a business and I misused the money of that business with um, mm. gambling. So I lost the business. I was charged with theft for the misuse of those monies. And I went into treatment at that point. And I think the, the significant thing about that is that even in treatment, I still wasn't going to tell about the sexual abuse. I had nothing left to lose. I lost my business, all of my friends, my home, all of our belongings, our cars. Your reputation. Yes, everything. I had nothing to lose and I still wouldn't tell. And thankfully, I ended up at the just an amazing place in Sedona, Arizona, and they just had a feeling. They knew. And so they waited me out and eventually I broke. And finally, I finally just disclosed the abuse. And, and as bad as all of the things were that I had to walk through, the fire I had to walk through, the embarrassment, the humiliation, the loss of everything, the mistakes, because my judgment was so skewed, all of that led to the most powerful healing journey of my life. So it sounds like, and I don't know that I would be able to say, well, I can say it around sexuality. So I guess you're not ashamed of the weight. You're not ashamed of the spending. You're not ashamed of embezzling. I mean, you don't feel like you're a bad person. And that I think is maybe the best message that you can give today is because you revealed and worked through what left you feeling so bad about yourself in the first place. It sounds like it's allowed you to be much more compassionate and forgiving of yourself for what came after. Absolutely. I wasn't a bad person. I was a broken person. And I lacked the judgment and the clarity and the consequential thinking to even see, oh, this might be inappropriate. And so, you know, we all make mistakes and we're, we're not our mistakes. And being able to say, this is my truth. And that's why I speak. Because yes, these are the ugly littered truths of my life. But I try to get other people to know they don't have to make those mistakes, like recognize yourself in my mistakes, or people are always so quick to judge other people. Oh, why does she sleep around? Why does he cheat on his wife? Why does they spend too much? Why is he doing Coke every day? And they have no idea. And 
you know, we all know that children who are abused, that their MRI scans as adults show that their brains grew differently. And Oh, Kelly, we are now having trauma assessments as a routine in general practitioners so that when you go to see your doctor about a cold or certainly depression, one of the things they're now being trained to ask about is early childhood trauma or aversive childhood experiences. And that's new that we're introducing this to the medical profession and saying some of the reasons people may come to you and they're 400 pounds or they have a chronic irritable bowel syndrome or whatever that is may well have to do with early trauma. And that's really almost new to the medical culture. So I think it is slipping in slowly but surely. We're paying attention. Yes, and we need to as a society because I say all the time, how many rape victims have to sit down and have dinner at night with the person who raped them in the morning? But that is the truth of the horror that children who are sexually abused in their own homes deal with every day. And so their brains don't grow correctly. And of course, their judgment is is skewed. All of the, the consequential thinking, all of those areas of the prefrontal cortex and the amygdala, all of that. So that's why I implore people constantly. I'm so passionate about it. Stop judging other people because you don't know what they've been through. Well, Kelly, you know why we judge other people. It's because we don't want to be them. And, you know, when I look at the person who's in a situation that I don't want to be in, they're very heavy and I would never want to be heavy. It's easier for me to judge them than to look at the possibility that I'm just like them. And I could end up just like them in a heartbeat. You know, we judge people to, in part, keep away our fears that how vulnerable we are to be in the same situation at any time. And so it's much easier, I think, to push people away and say, I'm not like them than it is to see how much we're all alike. So I think judgment is inherent to the human experience, as is, by the way, gossip. Did you know that gossip is part of the social fabric, (laughs) part of our community and relational that actually is important in our terms of our forming community? Anyway, (laughs) I'm just putting it out there. Hey, Kelly, a couple of things. Number one, I love talking to you and I would love to spend more personal time with you and have you work with some of the people I, especially some of the women I work with, because I think your message is so graceful and so gracious and I really appreciate your bringing it. One of the things I want to ask you as we're stopping is if you could turn to that woman that you were after the, let's say after the bypass surgery, who was starting to lose weight and starting to feel better about herself, but but really didn't understand what was about to come, which is she was about to dive into other ways that she could disappear and really end up hurting herself. Or or even to that young woman who didn't understand what was driving her eating. What would you say to your younger self about what you would hope you could do differently or what would you like her to do or how you'd like her? Like, what would you say to her to have saved her, you know, 15 years or 20 years of pain after you lost the weight and had the surgery? I would like to say that it would make a difference what I said. I'm not sure that it would, but I would. You're not sure she would listen, but nonetheless. Right. right. But I would certainly tell her that she is worthy, that all of those broken places that she's trying to hide from the world, she doesn't have to hide those in shame and that she's more than anything that was ever done to her and anything that was ever said to her. And she is worthy simply because her heart is beating. Oh, honey. I mean, you're the best ever. (laughs) (laughs) I can only imagine that your son has a wonderful mom and I hope that he is doing really well in his life. You know, I want to say to you, Kelly, that to me, you exemplify, and I want everyone to hear this, that we are more than our shortcomings, that we are more than the things that we do that we don't feel good about. We're more than the ways we might hurt someone else or let them down. We are more than all of those things. And sometimes we're able to find out how it is and why it is. We've done the things we have, and sometimes we're not. 
but there are so many opportunities every day to be a better person and to yourself and others. And Kelly, you so exemplify that. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much. It just, it means everything to me to let people know that tomorrow's a new day. I don't want people on my team who don't have some scars and bruises because I think that people who have healed, people who have walked through the fire, those are the most amazing people in the world. They're filled with compassion and love. And those are the people I want on my team. So, and I think we've all learned you can have a whole bunch of people sitting on your bench, but that doesn't mean you have anybody on your team. Well, and I would say that to many of the people I work with, that they don't invite people to be on their team. You know, they only, they're superficial. They don't talk about what they really need. You know, so many of the men I work with who are acting out sexually, and I'm sure this is true for women with eating disorders, you know, I'll say to them, do you have many friends? And they'll say, oh yes, I have this friend or that friend. How many of them know about your sexual behavior? None. Mm-hmm. So how many friends do you really have? And I would say to the woman who's 350 pounds, how many friends of yours know what happens when you get home at five o'clock at night and your fridge is full and you're facing it alone? And she'll probably say, well, I don't really like to let anybody know about that part of me. And of course, that's the part of us that we have to have known and seen and get compassion for. And so again, Kelly, you bring all of that. Thank you for that. Let me ask you this. How will people find you if they want to ask you to speak, if they'd like to have a consultation with you about these issues? How would they find you uh, and your compassionate voice? Well, my website is kellygunter.com. And that's K-E-L-L-E-Y-G-U-N-T-E-R, right? Right. That's my website. I'm also on Facebook and on Instagram. I'm at Gunter Kelly. So I do a lot on Instagram, a lot more than I do on Facebook. And will you respond to people by doing uh, consultations? Can they talk to you online? Are you available for interviews? Are you, know, is this, are you just open right now to people reaching out to you and, and hearing the message that you have to give? Absolutely. I respond to every, me- well, I don't respond to every message. Like the messages that are like, hey, sexy, da-da. no, delete. <laughs> I might have maybe 20 years ago. <laughs> right. I respond to every single message I get and I get a lot of them. I just got a super long message from a lady in Italy yesterday who read my book. And so I respond to everybody and I respond to interviews. So yes. I agree with you, Kelly. Like, um, by the way, folks, I'm Rob at SeekingIntegrity.com in case somebody actually wants to find me. <laughs> and I think that it, it is essential that we take the time. It's part of our job to not only put ourselves out publicly, but to make sure that when people reach out, we give them resources, we give them suggestions. I mean, it is part of my job to answer 20 emails a day and just give people hope and direction. And I think that is, and again, you're right, Kelly, that's part of what how we hold out what we do. Folks, this is Kelly Gunter. The book she wrote is, I want you to say it and announce it with big letters. <laughs> you have such a pretty face. And it's about the challenge of, of addictive eating and trauma and survival. And it's a beautiful story. Thank you. There's a lot in there. There's a lot in, packed into that book. <laughs> and there's going to be more, right? Let me ask you, what is your, um, what is this, this next book you're writing? Is it a, tell me what it's called again, something about beauty queens. I want to hear it. The Homecoming Queen of Crazy Town. What is that about? What is that about? I just love the title. Yeah, I introduce her in You Have Such a Pretty Face. And Mm -hmm. that's the person I was when, and we all have the queen or king living inside of us, but when we feel insecure or less than or overwhelmed and emotional, and that's the person who takes over. And Mm -hmm. 
like chaos ensues. And so the second book, The Homecoming Queen of Crazy Town, and I can tell you people, that's the biggest message I get. Messages every day. I've probably gotten a thousand messages from readers saying, girl, you may be the queen, but I'm dang sure on the court, you know, but (laughs) people really relate to her. So the second memoir is just all true stories of my life and all the insanely crazy things that myself and my friends did in all of that time when I was searching for myself and so unhealthy. I said to a psychologist friend of mine, I said, I don't know if I should tell all these stories because I mean, some of them are just downright embarrassing. And, you know, she said, you have to, you have to, because people will find themselves in there. So and every lemon that you show is turning, you've turned all your lemons into lemonade. And that's the message that we both, I think, want to share with folks is that everything that's happened to you and everything that you've either done or had happened to you are things that with some work and some support and some love you can turn into a gift or at least a gift you can give to others which is what you've done for us kelly thank you so much kelly for your time and i really hope we see you out there again in the world of recovery and people reach out to you by the way in your new book i hear a movie title just saying so you know we never know crazy town sounds like a really good movie title i'd want to be in that yes yes so we'll be waiting for you here in hollywood when you're ready to show up um thank you folks uh, for listening and thanks kelly for being here you are an amazing person Thank you. Thank you for having me. Hi, this is Dr. Rob again. Thank you for joining us today. If this show has inspired you to seek further information for yourself or someone you love, I encourage you to visit our treatment center website, which is www.seekingintegrity.com. There you'll find some useful information about the residential treatment we provide, which I think is some of the best, most useful, short-term effective intensive care you can find for sexual addiction and compulsivity, as well as combined drug sex or chem sex problems. On SeekingIntegrity.com, you can find some useful advice and direction for healing. And don't forget, if you want to write me about this podcast or reach any of my guests, please write me at Rob at SeekingIntegrity.com. I really look forward to our next time together. Take good care.